0: Today we're we're gonna be talking about something which I find fascinating. We've just given it this title, The Implications of Democratized Finance. um, And we really wanna get into what's happening in the retail equity market here, over in the United States, across in Europe, because I think this is transformational what we're seeing over the last 10 years. But I think before we do that, we need to give some context of why you're the perfect person to have this particular discussion. And if anyone doesn't know, this is all going to just revolve around a quick introduction to you and the story of Easy Equities. So, if we just start now, what exactly is Easy Equities?
1: Look, the name sort of gives it away. Uh, it's an interface that makes uh, accessing the financial markets really simple and easy. And essentially, at the heart of our DNA is to be able to democratize access to all things investing. But we started with the most obvious asset class being uh, access to listed shares and equities.
0: When did you start and, and what was the sort of idea behind it? Look, I, as my beard
1: sort of gives away, I've been at this for a while. So, you know, I've been in stockbroking or stockbroking-like services for 21 years now. And the market just never got any bigger. You know, stockbrokers kept fighting for the same pool of customers. So in 2014, I asked my my kids and my wife a simple question. I said, you know, why have you never wanted to buy shares. You know, they've got the perfect access point. You know, I work in and have been working in stock working for a long time. And the answers went something like this, you know, it's too intimidating. I've downloaded your trading platform. It looks too sophisticated. I'm too embarrassed to make a fool of myself. You, should, you know, I should be an expert because you're an expert. And it's all about complexity, intimidation and everything. And, uh, you know, after a few DOSMs, I came away with the simple insight that as financial services practitioners, we had over sophisticated the interface, the engagement points through which customers try to access these services. And I came back with this deep desire to make things easy, uh, hence the brand name.
0: Why do you think that is? I mean, the opportunity for people to invest in equities has been around for you know, donkey's years. And yet, even now, when I look at some of the competitors out there, it is still incredibly complicated.
1: Look, I think firstly, uh, and I can take I I built just my background, i built a lot of technology uh, to try and service uh, trading clients. And I remember that when we built this technology, the first people we asked about what we needed to build were all traders. So, you know, they were sophisticated in their needs and desires. And so they translated that onto us as the techies. And so we built stuff that they wanted us to build. And so the the level of complexity never considered the fact that for most people, this would be the first time they'd ever engaged with uh, share investing. The pessimist in me, uh, and I'm, I'm an optimist, but my pe- the pessimist says we also did it to protect ourselves. Uh, you know, we created this industry that was looked like it was more complex than it needed to be. And that created jobs for us and made us look smarter than the, the, we needed to be. Because fundamentally, at the centre of investing services, there is very little complexity. It's a very simple uh, thing. It's, we're not building nuclear bombs here. You know, if we were, we'd have lots of engineering degrees and uh, be rocket scientists. But I think we we overcomplicated for those two reasons: one, we asked the wrong people, and two, we created uh, a protection of, uh, for ourselves so that we could live and charge fees in this industry.
0: Uh, if the folklore is correct, it's back in 2013 when you've had this idea about democratizing um, investing into equities and other asset classes as well was it literally on the back of a sticky note and and how did you build out that idea from there and and get the investors behind you to give you the funding to actually get started yeah i mean
1: literally it was it was a one-liner let's make it easy and then i i came back from that holiday in uh, mozambique and i sat down with a, a few people from different walks of life and I gave them the concept. I said to them, this, you know, the analogy is we've over sophisticated it, the answer is we're gonna simplify it. And then we talked about what does that mean? What does easy uh, feel and look like? And there were, there were five people who, or four other people who joined me who got really excited about this journey of trying to demystify and, and create an easy access point. And it was interesting it created its own momentum because the more we talked about it the more we realized how much friction there was uh, for consumers and so you know unlocking this ease of use became something that had its its own momentum and people gave more ideas and shared their experience of sophistication of why it was sophisticated and why they didn't go on with it and so yeah it just started with an idea but the idea like you know, I've, I've had lots of bad ideas and the, the thing that you know about bad ideas is it gets no momentum. When you have a good idea, the momentum is sort of become self-fulfilling. And the momentum just grew and grew. Um, and eventually, we, it literally it was a business firstly that we started to build in February. We launched the first version of it in a game in, in August, uh, so only six months later. And it was interesting, we were about to launch this business called Easy Equities. We would built this interface and I had a knee jerk reaction to say, well, we've built lots of interface in our past and none of them were easy and it would be a very bad brand launch to launch a sophisticated trading platform called Easy Equities. And we ran this game, we invited first time investors and there were about 2000 of them that played. Out of those 2000, we had 1500 complaints around how intimidating the interface still was. And so again, out of that gameplay, created a whole lot of momentum to make it even easier for our customers.
0: That's an interesting model that you are like, and, and perhaps we'll try to go into that if we've got time later in the call, because the, the build out of Easy Equities and the way that you've done it is fascinating. I know we've chatted about this before. But anyway, so that's 2013. Uh, you've got your gameplay up and running. How many months did it take before you actually did the first release from that original idea that you'd had? Yeah, so that was 2014
1: the holiday was december 2013 so 2014 started the build in february launched the game in august and then out of the game had these you know 1500 complaints and we created quite a lot of uh, expectation that we were going to launch quite soon in fact we were supposed to launch first september so we delayed the launch until the 27th of october that was the minimum viable period that my developers gave me to be able to deliver on like sixty or seventy percent of the ease of use uh, that needed to be still be built, and yeah. So we we launched on twenty seventh of October two thousand and fourteen, to okay. an audience of a couple of thousand people.
0: So I was just going to ask about that. So that was a couple of thousand people that basically came in, the first adopters of of the world. Do you know roughly in those days? how many equity investors there were in South Africa, in totality across all of the different organizations that offer these services?
1: Yeah, the JSC had on record 280,000 stockbroking accounts across all brokers, uh, individual accounts. Um, how many of those were active? You know, Typically about 50 or 60% of those would have been active.
0: Okay, well, we're, co- we're gonna come back to that. So that's 2014. Then you go from 2014 to 2018. What was the the growth like? Was it kind of steady? Were you pleased with the progress? And, and during that, did you actually um, see the light where you might start generating profits? Yeah.
1: You know, firstly, the growth met our expectations in the first couple of years. It's sort of double digit, triple digit growth uh, year on year, 70, 80% growth year on year. Our first year, we closed out with 10,000 active customers which was, interestingly, that was our, our goal. Our three-year goal was 100,000 active customers, and we felt that we would break even at 100,000 customers when we modeled the economics, what we thought the economics of the business would look like. Out of interest, that would have made us the biggest stockbroker in South Africa by number of customer accounts, and we were only seeking to be profitable once who were the biggest, which was an interesting design kind of constraint for the business. Well,
0: that, that, that was quite a ballsy uh, goal then, because it, you know, as you said, you've got 250 odd thousand from the uh, JSE data and you're not only going to be the biggest, you're, you're basically going to say we're going to have a third of investors using our platform currently. And so did, <laughs> How did you get people to buy in that this was actually achievable? It sounds crazy. Yeah, look, I think
1: it did seem crazy at the time. And with hindsight, it doesn't seem so crazy. But at the time, it was, you know, fundamentally, the thing that we realized is that it didn't matter where you found yourself talking about stocks, whether that was in, uh, you know, your social circles or uh, in a cinema or a shopping mall or wherever. And it didn't matter what demographic or education background you were talking to in terms of the individual. Every time you ask them a simple question, do you want to own shares on the stock exchange? The answer every single time was yes so the demand has always been there and that's what gave us the confidence to do this is to say the problem hasn't been that south africans are bad share investors the problem has been that the industry has presented the wrong storefront and so when we thought about the numbers we weren't worried about the fact that we needed to be the biggest to be profitable we we were looking at population numbers and saying look if we do this properly we can get you know, Australia is the benchmark. Australia, 35% of Australians have got stockbroking accounts. Now, if we achieve that in South Africa, uh, we've got 50 million. So whatever 35% is of 50 million, 17 million stockbroking accounts. So, you know, the confidence came from the fact that everyone we asked wanted to own shares. And we were on this journey to ensure that we eliminated all of the friction points.
0: All right. So still think it's a rather bold Goal that you've set yourself there. So that was year three. What did you ta- um, actually hit in year three? You said you were going for a hundred thousand. Yeah, we were we were twenty thousand short. The good thing about budgets is
1: they never they never get achieved. Everyone's every every budget I've ever reviewed or every startup company I've ever been part of, we're all going to be break even and profitable after year three. We well, we weren't. Uh, so we hit eighty thousand accounts, and we at that point we realised that actually the behavior of our customers wasn't gonna generate the income that we thought it would. So we needed to get more customers. So the, the business plan became more difficult to achieve, but the momentum was continuing to grow. So the bigger the business got, the faster it started to grow. And that yeah. again, gave us the confidence to carry on.
0: Okay, so my calculation here, that's roughly 2017. It's now 2021, how many customers do you have uh, today? So, we have a million registrations, so account holders, of which just
1: over 50% of them are active. So, over half a million South African stockbroking accounts.
0: So, that, and I just find that absolutely incredible. So, 10,000 on year one, 80,000 on year three, and what are we now, year seven ish? you know, 1,500,000 active investors, you've basically taken the marketplace of 250 to 280,000 investors from seven years ago. And essentially you've, you've just blown it out of the park. You've quadrupled access for people in this marketplace. And, and so what's interesting about that is this exponential growth curve of people now starting to invest in equities. Is this evidence of a trend that you are seeing not only in South Africa, Africa, but but globally, where there are more and more people that are just piling into direct retail investing into stocks and shares?
1: Yeah, it, it, it certainly is. I think at the center of this change is that the technology, the ecosystem to support it is suddenly right. So I think the desire to do this has been around for a long time and people have tried. And yes, they might have got the engagement strategy wrong or the interfaces wrong. But there were lots of things that were broken in the ecosystem. And I mean, if you just let's contextualize it back to South Africa, you know, when did it become, when did the smartphones become accessible to a large majority of, of the population? When did data become cheap enough that it made sense for you to invest five rand a day rather than, you know, spend that five rand on data? And that's only been in the last kind of three or four years that you've seen uh, data costs come down exponentially. Smartphone pricing come, gone down exponentially, and so the ecosystem has got to the point now where you can you know you can access that market at a low cost, and they can access those services commensurately at a low cost, and that's played out everywhere else uh, in the world where we've got competitors. I mean, the possible is is Robin, Robin Hood in the United States and. I think they're now talking about 18 million customers. Uh, that business is almost to a day the same age as we are, and you know if you look back a year ago, they would have had less than eight million customers. So they're still doubling at 100% year on year. Just reflecting on the numbers that you said talked about with us, it's a big number—a million. Uh, it took us six and a half years, but the real magic is in that exponential growth. And you know the next million will take less than 12 months. And the real power in these business models is actually the people that you're empowering. It's the, your customers, because it is a snowball rolling downhill. The more you engage them, the more you excite them, the more reward they get from your investment services, the more they'll talk about it with their friends and family. And I think the biggest catalyst for this growth is the fact that we've taken finance out of the cupboard. I mean, I know that the first time I sat and talked about my finances as a, as a first-time job seeker back when I was 20 years old. It was a very private discussion you had with an advisor who purportedly was smarter than you and knew what to do with your money. And uh, it's sort of you kept the conversation between him. You had it twice a year and it was something you kept in that sort of advisory closet. What's wonderful today is that we've we've broken down the barriers, but we've also taken finance out of the cupboard. It's a conversation that people are having in very social spaces, Facebook, Twitter, Um, what am I missing Instagram and all of the others and that impact is where the exponential power is coming from because you're that you're having this this conversation broadly and there are people listening in and they're educating themselves by just listening in on other people's conversations and the bigger the crowd gets the bigger the crowd that is assembled to listen in on them so this is a seed shift in finance it will never be the same again I think everyone recognizes that you know COVID Interestingly has been the catalyst for a lot of CEOs to abandon storefront strategies over digital strategies. but I think once and for all, businesses have stopped paying lip service to digital, and the future of everything, not just finance, is all going to be one on digital channels.
0: so you obviously think that you know because you, you said Robin Hood and yourselves and the other uh, players in this field, this growth is just probably in the knee of the curve we 're expecting doubling to continue it 's going to be two million and then four million and then you know no doubt as you expand across Africa into other geographies, these numbers that we're talking about now today of you know five six hundred thousand active customers are just going to look like you know peanuts. What disruption is this creating for the incumbents? Is this a new market which they weren't playing in, or is this stealing the lunch of the pension funds and the asset managers and the other institutional investors that have previously been in this space
1: no I mean I of our customers are first time investors. So, you know, they haven't, uh, they may have pension funds in some regard, but certainly from a direct access perspective to investments, this is their first time that they've invested. This is not a land grab from the incumbent um, providers at all. This is a, a new generation of investors. And I say that, let me share the demographics with you just to give that some context. So, the average age of our customers is 31 years old. The average age of our competitors' customers is 55 years old. They're black South Africans, uh, 59% male, uh, 41% female. And just as an example, they're getting younger every year. So when we started the business, the average age was 35 and uh, the gender split was 85% male, 15% female. So the shift is to younger and younger investors, which is where the real magic sits. I mean, you know, that's what gets us out of bed really early is to see that needle moving to the a younger audience all the time. And we start to see balance uh, in you know, 50-50 male, female. And importantly for us, this is our customers, are, and this is probably the thing I'm the most proud about as our business, is that our customers are a reflection of the fabric of the demographic of South Africa. And there isn't, I can say this, there isn't another financial services business that operates in the investment landscape. You can say that out loud. Their businesses will be depicted by 55 year old white male. Uh, and so this is a very, this is a new generation, young generation of South Africans that are taking up investing for the first time.
0: Okay, but if we look forward though, I mean, it might not be stealing existing customers, but if surely if I'm an asset manager, a pension fund administrator, um, a unit trust organisation, I've got to be worried because I might be comfortable for the next couple of years with the 55 year olds that are continuing to, probably through laziness, not go and actually get through the friction of changing their investments into something like easy equities. But we've got a new new generation that are coming through over the next five or ten years, who are no longer gonna be available for the unit trusts and asset managers because they're perfectly happy doing direct investments in retail. Am I sort of missing something there? Is there any reason why this young set that you've got should still look at unit trusts and, and pension funds and some of these managed funds that are out there?
1: Yeah, look, I think based on uh, your age, your know, income group, what's going on in your family, what's happening in your career, your desire for financial services does shift. And that's why, So as you're younger and you're starting your career, typically you have more time and the inclination to, and no family, no kids. You have a high risk profile and you therefore have the inclination and the time to go and invest for yourself. As things get in the way, you have have kids, you start a family, all that kind of stuff. um, Your career starts to take over, you get less time. And so you may outsource some of your investments to people that you trust. Now, whether or not those are the traditional trusted players, I would say no chance. I would say that Coronation Alan Gray will not exist inside this client's audiences, uh, you know, rearview mirrors, they're not going to look for them. But there will be an emergence of a new asset manager, someone who engages them in a new way that creates products and services that, for me, allow them to be co-pilot and pilot rather than pilot and passenger. You know, the old world of asset manager says, this is the plane I fly, trust me to fly it, and i'm going to give you no access to the cockpit i think that world is over the future of asset management will look more like a co-pilot pilot relationship where you're invited in and you are taught about why i'm shifting the controls left or right etc so for me asset management isn't dead advice isn't dead but the platforms through which you're going to access this customer base are going to be 100 percent digital they're going to be transparent they're going to be lower cost They're going to need to be engaging and rewarding, and you're going to have to uh, deliver a customer experience that looks more like Easy Equities than it does like Alan Gray. It's not a case of those structures are over, but the presentation, the interfaces through which they are presented, those things are over. They're they're dinosaurs. They're they're going to die out over the next decade.
0: Yeah, I mean... I don't want to get um, uh, too off piece, but something that I'm fascinated about is I would have thought most people who are wanting a balanced portfolio, they're just going to go for trackers. and, And I'm sure you've got a whole bunch of trackers that are there, you know, exchange traded funds, giving you a nice balanced portfolio. You sit there, I don't have the time to go and dip in and dip out on a daily basis. This is fine. My understanding is that most of those trackers far and away outperform most fund managers anyway.
1: Yeah, look, I think, you know, especially in the South African context where the investment universe is relatively small, you know, there are 300 shares and 70 unit trusts. Very easy to construct a balanced portfolio with a few shares out of that. And for, you know, for the man in the street, that's there's no requirement to not do it for themselves. When you get outside of South Africa, it changes significantly. So if we look at just the US, you know, there, there's something like 15,000 listed shares in ETFs. Your universe of opportunities is just so big that it's you can't you can't navigate that alone. So in that instance, I think you're going to find that customers will seek out professionals who understand sectors better uh, than they do. So as an example, I'll just use myself as an example, you know, I, I manage my South African portfolio for myself, I think I've got as much access and information as anyone else. My US portfolio, though, there are sectors that I I really love um, and that I'm passionate about and have been invested for a long time, and most of those are NASDAQ 100 companies, and so I'll manage that NASDAQ 100 kind of portfolio, but the other sectors that I know nothing about that I'm really interested in and I think are going to disrupt the future, so for example, biotech, but I know nothing about biotech, so in the biotech space, I'll look for a manager who has outperformed the benchmark, if you like, of that sector, and seek to you know place my money with him so and and i'm also interested in places like china and I'm, and and places like indonesia but again i don't understand it so for me the access point there would be to invest alongside people who understand that domain as well as i understand south africa as i learn from their moves i might take up a little bit more of the controls but for now uh, the the world as an investment uh, universe is just too big and complex for me to navigate on my own and so they are when you look at it from South Africa, it's a very small pond, very small investment opportunities and universe. But the minute you step outside, that universe is very big, very complex and difficult to navigate if you don't have someone alongside you.
0: Presumably, this means that there is a change in sentiment about what people are in, investing in. And I guess there's two there's two parts to this. Firstly, that's only going to be interesting if there's enough scale so I'll come on to that in a moment let's just start where I wanted to start if there's a change in settlement if you're going for an asset manager or a unit trust you know you've been onboarded you've taken a risk profile you've said I'm on one or balanced or growth or whatever it is they have a look at how many years before you retire you know and a whole bunch of other things but my sense is that the analysis that goes into it is very financially focused this is the balance sheet this is the ratios this is depth, in-depth analysis with equity analysts, and and it doesn't really matter, it's it's very numbers focused. What are typical investors using as their guides to choose the stocks that they're wanting to invest in when they come in something through easy equities?
1: Yeah, it's a fascinating question. I had this discussion uh, with Pit Fulion, who's a very well known South African value manager. And I think the perception of value has changed, you know, value in the old sense of investing is you buy cheap cheap companies at a good price and, and or good companies at a cheap price rather and i think that the 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 retail lens through which people are looking at stocks is very different from the institutional lens so for example people will invest in things that they think are going to disrupt and make a better world you know tesla's a great example of that you know people can't work out the income statement. Anyone who can has got a, done a better job of uh, of Elon's business than any of us have done. But why has he got such a cult following? And it's because they believe he's going to change the world uh, in everything that he does, and he's got a track record of changing it. You know, he has credibly changed the you know world in in everything that he's done, from PayPal when he's you know at his roots to Tesla and uh, SpaceX and everything else. So that lens for them that they're looking through is they want to be part of that journey, part of that storyline. They want to be part of uh, the ownership structures that, you know, change this world. Uh, the other thing is that they want to see companies do good just in their communities and around them in the places that they live. And so they will seek to make investments that in companies that are doing good around them. And they can tangibly uh, see that. They also want to invest in companies that are that enrich their lives and you know, in the sense that if you take something like Apple, which is a, massive favorite of our, our community. It's, it's something that they can touch, feel, engage with. They understand the value proposition of Apple and they can see how that resonates with other people and why that will be a successful business through, that, uh, through the way they engage their customers. So they'll buy shares where they shop, if you like, where they spend their income statement. Um, and so their lens is very different to the institutional lens. You know, institutions are looking to ensure they put your money in the safest place that gets you the Best risk-adjusted return. That language doesn't get used in retail, Uh, and it doesn't mean that it's not relevant anymore. But it's not relevant for them. You know, it's to summarize. They sort of they want to be part of the journey. They want to see businesses change the world in a positive way. They want to see they want to invest in products that enrich their lives and the lives of the communities around them. And importantly for me, the future CEO is going to have to understand this very well because right now. The PowerPoint presentations are stacked up to institutional investors. They're the ones who own the dialogue um, or the engagement with the CEO. The future is going to be very different. And we've seen a hint of that in the US, where the retail investor is starting to wag the dog. And Elon Musk is, is hes the best at this. I mean, he has got the retail investor at his fingertip because he breaks his news on social media, not on front page headlines and newspapers. So uh, it's a very, very exciting uh, future. And these retail investors are demanding on their needs in terms of their capital. It's not just that they don't want profit at any expense. Uh, they want to see their their, their uh, investments have purpose first and profit second.
0: For that to happen, I mean, I think it's a fascinating uh, conversation about whether this is going to actually change CEO behaviors. But there need to be significant flows of direct retail investing for that needle to move and if i think about institutional investing you know uh, a couple of deals in a day this is going to be you know several billion dollars for a couple of trades Now this is giving the liquidity to the market It doesn't feel like a million two million and what did you say 18 million Robin hood investors are gonna be able to move the dial particularly in terms of the share price and getting the underlying CEOs more interested in what they're what they're doing what am I sort of missing there about the volume of retail trades
1: look in the US over 25% uh, is now retail of volume so you know, that's very significant and that's grown, you know, exponentially over the last decade. That's not gonna let up. So I'll I'll predict that over the next five years that's gonna go from twenty-five percent to to fifty percent in the US. And and we're following that trend. You know, we're we're probably a decade behind them. But over the next decade, I would say that retail in South Africa is gonna achieve that twenty-five percent, and then it will, we'll halve the time to get to the next twenty-five percent or fifty percent. And the important aspect of of it is that the retail investor is much more vocal with their capital, so they are much they are become brand advocates or or share advocates, evangelists, uh, and so you know they talk about their investments in very social public spaces. You know, institutional investors do it in quiet boardrooms, and so the impact of an institutional investor joining or leaving is very limited. You know, it's you know few few, few insiders know about it, but. The impact of retail investors publicly sharing their experiences, their views on these companies can be very rewarding for the company itself, i.e., again, let's use Apple, let's use purple because it's a much closer to home kind of, and it's, you know, I'm the CEO of that business. Our shareholders are our largest advocates for our business on social media. So when we started Easy Equities, we had less than 1,800 retail shareholders. Today, we've got over 30,000 retail shareholders. And that is doubling now every 12 months. And so as CEO, who am I listening to in terms of the direction of my business, the future services of the group? It's 100% the retail. And sure, they they do have negative control. I'm pleased to say they've got over 26% of the shares, but they're not. They don't own more than 50%, but they are my consumer. They the they the person that I'm trying to engage and build better services for. So why would I listen to the institutions more? And I think that's what the future holds, is that you can create this shareholder relationship with your customers and convert consumers into shareholders. And if you listen to them closely enough, you'll meet more of their needs. And if you do that, they're gonna be your advocates. They're gonna be the people that introduce you to more people. And you're gonna create exponential business opportunities by just listening to your retail shareholders.
0: This could be incredibly uh, dangerous because if I think about you know, the financial crises over the last days, you know, uh, 2008 and 2000, 2001, even with institutional investors and regulatory oversight, we get this herd mentality where everything's fine, and then there's a run, and everyone's starting to try to bail out, and the markets just crash. And it doesn't matter what the regulators try to do; um, you know, we get these uh, disastrous results. So particularly when it goes from Wall Street to Main Street and starts impacting people with whatever their mortgages or, you know, um, their day-to-day living standards. Now, one worry is that when we have a crowd of people who are using platforms like Reddit. And there have been some lovely examples, particularly in the US, haven't there, where we've seen GameStop. Who on earth at GameStop? Everyone's piling into GameStop and becoming their saviors. Their share price goes shoom. We've seen the same on Bitcoin where it's gone from $10,000, $15,000 to $60,000 in the space of 12 months and then halved in three or four days. And obviously Tesla's a great example. Any analyst worth his salt is gonna say that this is the most overvalued stock on the planet, how can you have a car manufacturer sitting there with the production line, which is a tenth, a hundredth of all the other car manufacturers put together, and be the most valuable company in that particular sector? So we've got these huge examples of herds stoking each other on social platforms, having uh, people, perhaps like an Elon Musk spokesman, statesman for them, who as soon as they turn around and make a, a 140 character tweet saying, I don't go for Bitcoin anymore, it crashes by 30%. Is it, This sounds incredibly dangerous, and regulators are going to be worried about this.
1: Yeah, we mustn't worry about it too much. I mean, what we've got today is millions of investors voting for themselves, as opposed to herds of elephants voting with retail money. and. You know it's the, the herds of elephants the institutions have done much more damage um because they move quickly and they, they you know and when they fight the only thing that gets injured is the ground underneath them you know the the retail the regulatory environment to support retail needs to get more sophisticated that's the lesson that came out of reddit and no doubt regulators are going to have to respond but retail uh, investors are, you know, and you've got to, I want to use the word investors versus traders because I think there's a, there's a key difference. The behavior that we see in Easy Equities is that 95% of our customers are investors. They're long term. They buy something because they've fallen in love with it and they're not going to change their minds. In fact, if there's a crash, they're just going to buy more. I mean, again, personalizing it. I've seen, you know, posts on Twitter over the last couple of weeks can't wait for Purple to go back to one Rand 30 so we can buy some more you know and it's sitting at 150 so they're behaving like you would want them to behave they see a crisis as an opportunity to buy stocks cheap and hold them for a long period of time the trading aspect of what's going on is very small inside easy equities now i think that is different in other jurisdictions if you look at robin hood the biggest difference between it and us is that's a trading application? It's got derivatives and options, uh, it's got gearing and a whole lot of facilities outside of just equities. And you know they're just about to IPO, so we've they've been sharing their information broadly. I think it's 75% of the economics come from trading instruments, trading activity, and so I would say there is some concern around that. You know that's when the tide goes out, those products uh, go. The tide goes out faster on them because there's gearing and because there's optionality in those structures. But for the equity investor these long-term investors, when the tide goes out, it's an opportunity to buy. And we've just seen that. You know, I've, I'm old enough to have seen a few crisis, financial crises. Um, and the last one was now, just over a year ago, COVID hit it. And what was, the, what was the observed behavior of the retail investment crowd? Is they ran towards the crisis. They found more money to place in their investments. So they didn't run away from it. And it, they, you know, at some point, I think JSE was down, a, you know, 30%, 35%. They collectively added more than 20% to their investments in a very short period of time and took advantage of that sell-off. And so one year later, they're sitting on top of you know, a whole lot more money, having run towards the crisis and bought cho- uh, stocks cheap. So you know, I think there's nothing to be scared of. Regu- the regulatory environment is going to have to become more sophisticated. There are things that Elon says that I go, that's not appropriate. You know, it's and they the regulators must be wrestling with how to handle them. You know, if if we said that, it's, if I said that in South Africa, I would expect to be you know hauled over the coals. But he's taunting them because he knows that they they're not sophisticated enough. The regulatory framework isn't supposed to get enough to control them. But how do we change that? You've got to create these battles. You've got to have these little mini wars, and then the regulators have to uh, come to terms with it and reset the boundaries of what what is appropriate. But these retail investors are more sophisticated than they get credit for. They do their homework. They do their research. They fall in in love with stocks that they want to hold forever. They've read Buffett and, and Graham and everyone else. And the good thing about them is that they're making decisions for themselves. And whilst Reddit might look like there's a herd activity going on, I think that's very specific to trading opportunities, not investing opportunities.
0: So let's go back to the impact for uh, CEOs. Then, so the more that you talk, the less confident I am about holding stocks and shares in platforms like BlackRock or, you know, uh, Momentum or whoever it might be. But. The model that you're trying or or potentially is being broken has been around for 50 or 60 years. I mean, this all comes back from this idea from Friedman that the only thing a CEO has to care about is his shareholders. This is his sole responsibility. Their single goal is to generate profits and use it to reinvest for resources and engage in activities that generate more profit for that stakeholder group of shareholders. But the problem with it is it's. Been hugely negative. We've had massive environmental damage. Um, regulation hasn't been able to go and keep up with things. We've got huge negative externalities with pollution and whatever it might be, depending on your particular sector. So it's been a pretty negative model for society as a whole, where employees for example haven't done particularly well let's go and outsource to sweatshops over in um, east asia or the environment has been failed because of carbon pollution or plastic pollution because they don't see it as part of their particular mandate do you think that this retail surge of individual investors is giving momentum to force a change in how ceos are running companies
1: 100 percent i mean You know, Nike's probably the best example of a company that was forced to change. You know, 10 years ago, sweatshops and, you know, lowest cost producer, you know, for a reasonable tacky. Today, you know, if you look at it, they've got purpose at the center of their their business. um, And, you know, they're very socially active in driving change in their communities and through their brand. And the cost of those shoes has gone up a whole lot more, but they're selling more shoes than they've ever sold because they've created the sense of purpose. Um, They're also, our customers love them as a share as well. So I think that 100%, the retail investor is going to vote CEOs out if it's for profit's sake only. You know, I think that your retail investor is much more discerning. Yes, we all want profit. We're all capitalists at heart. That's why we own shares. Otherwise, you know, what would the point be? But it's not profit at everyone's expense. Uh, there must be purpose in what you do. And if you can get that purpose to resonate with your shareholders, then that becomes a very powerful force uh, for the group. And as CEO, you've got to strike, it's a, it's a hard balance to strike. Because and I can tell you now that as Easy Equities has grown, we've had lots of profit opportunities, whereas you know, if you like, the old shareholder, and I'm not putting an age in it, but a shareholder from 10 years ago would say, well, you have to do that. and the caution is, well, be careful if you do that, because you've got this retail shareholder base that are your customers that might be discerning or might think differently about that product or service. And so we haven't done things like that. And so, you, you know, I'm sitting there always constantly thinking about how my retail shareholders are going to react to the product or service or line. And so it's a much more honest engagement. And I'm fortunate that I get to live right alongside my customers and shareholders. I think very few CEOs today get to do that. I don't think they paid attention or have got the platforms and access, but you see it playing out more and more around the world. And you know, Tesla is it's the best example of it because he's just he's probably overdoing it, but he's, he's doing a good job of keeping the pulse of his retail shareholders right alongside him.
0: Okay, but you're, you're still small. Let's take it up a level to some of the really big listed companies. How long before we see them um, starting to change their approach? I mean, let's let's think of some really obvious examples where retail investors might not be pro their stocks. You've got Coke, for example, with the sugar that's being pumped out and the health issues that uh, come through from that. You've got uh, Johnson & Johnson in the US regularly being fined, not enough in my opinion, but being fined nonetheless for distributing drugs, which are hugely addictive and damaging to people's health um, and being caught on that side of things. You've got the uh, the minerals and resources, the Anglo-Americans, you know, with the pollution and the coal, um, which is helping to go and stoke the carbon that we're actually using that's going out through it. I mean, so you've got lots of examples, British Petroleum in the UK, for example, and all of those examples, the CEOs have said little things about trying to do more for sustainable development goals or to slightly improve the direction of travel, but they can't because the institutional investors are still expecting the returns and the dividends. And so they've still got to keep on basically producing these dirty products and services. Are they getting impacted by this wave that's coming through with Easy Equities and Robinhood already, or is it a bit premature? Look,
1: it's premature. It's premature. And certainly in South Africa, easy equities. Yeah, it's and it's premature for, let's say, an all Z40 stock. It's not premature for a small cap like me because, you know, retail is a big influencer in my share price and therefore what I do. But certainly that wave is coming and, and it, it won't escape the big, you know, top Dafferties, S&P 100, NASDAQ 100. It's going to just take more time. I would imagine, and go, you know, there's very few companies bigger than Apple, but I would imagine that Apple are already thinking about it. You know, Apple's consumer uh, shareholder is probably their most valuable asset. And I'd, I'd be amazed if Tim Cook isn't engaging at that level already and understanding um, their needs wants for, as shareholders. So I think it is happening in the background. I think that uh, with some of the more forward-looking brands, for some of the old world businesses that are not going to be here 100 years from now or 50 years from now or 30 years from now, who knows when, um, like fossil fuels and others, maybe it's just, well, we don't care. You know, we're going we're gonna to milk this until the oil runs out or, you know, there's an alternative. Uh, there's cheap solar energy or whatever it might be. Or the CEOs don't care in the sense that they don't see, you know, for them, their next bonus is about what the performance of the company is over five years. There's a lot of short-termism in the bonus structures, which is coming under attack now. And, you know, it's, it's not about what you did this year, it's about what you what was the impact you've had over the last 10 years or the, or the next 10 years, um, and not just in the income statement, but in the environment as well. So the change is accelerating faster than I've ever seen. I mean, the, you know, uh, corporate social investment, CSI is a very hot topic, social do good, very hot topic. You're starting to see ESG as a theme for bit, the big institutions. I mean, BlackRock has openly stood up and said, you know, if your your ESG credentials aren't good enough, we're not interested. So institutions are starting to catch on, but retail set the trend here and that the trend is getting stronger and will move faster. And I don't know how long it will take to disrupt the big, you know, some of the big, more uh, monolithic uh, groups, but it will, it, it, they'll def- it'll definitely get there.
0: So CEOs, maybe particularly in, this, in the resale space, um, need to pay attention to this. Can we imagine getting to a stage where, this divide between customer and investor starts to you know, diminish. I don't know, we go into Starbucks and uh, we've got our little card there. We've had 10 Starbucks now. And rather than having another coffee, we can have a fractionalized share in Starbucks. Or, you know, next time we go and um, put some bets in, bets is the wrong word, but investments into, I don't know, Nike or whatever it is through Robinhood or Easy Equities. Uh, perhaps there's a bonus at some point of a new pair of shoes. Can, can you imagine getting to a point where it's starting to become um one and the same whereas they're trying to please their customers they are essentially the investors at the same time and therefore it's the kind of the same message and the conversation that they're having yeah it's happening you know there's oh, a, so it's not that crazy no and and
1: you know i love this quote it's uh, in the history of the world nobody ever washed a rented car at the center of that quote says that ownership changes everything specifically behavior consumer behavior and you know, you just have to think about that for a second. You know, if, if we owned everything that we engaged with, and let's, take a, let's use another example, let's take a power producer. You know, if South Africans owned ESCOM, would we treat it differently? Would we illegally connect our houses? Would we be late with our payments? And would we be as disappointed in the price increases if we were getting dividends on the other side of that transaction? And the bottom line is that I think the answers are obvious. And so the future is going to be this ownership economy and the benefits that that's going to create for CEOs and shareholders are extraordinary. Firstly, change behavior, but sec- secondly, radically change the fabric of the financial services landscape and the impact that it has on you know, communities in the country. So it, and it is starting, you're starting to see CEOs think very seriously about swapping uh, consumption for shares, swapping loyalty program for shares. I mean, We've been working on this for six years and we will pull off a landmark deal at some point where we actually translate consumption into shares directly through a very large loyalty platform. It's, it's, it's you know, we haven't signed a deal on it, so, but I'm telling you we will because at some point, some CEO is going to listen to it and go, I, I buy that. I buy that uh, the best thing I can give my most loyal com- customers are shares because if I do that, they're going to stay longer and they're going to be more vocal. Um, and it's, you know, it's, not, it's beyond just uh, your, cons- your consumers. It's also your employees and your staff, because if everyone is a shareholder inside your organization, it also shifts their behavior. It changes the way they engage with the consumer, but it also changes the way they engage with me. So you know, if the cleaning lady at Purple Group is talking to me and asking me questions of the group, she's ta- talking to me as a shareholder, I have no right to say sorry. That information is privileged. It's not for you, and that also changes everything for them. So I, I think that the this ownership economy, where we the decentralisation of ownership structures and the disintermediation of institutions, that force you. There's no nothing can convince me that institutions will be the gatekeepers to capital in the future. That's it's gone, and it's just a question of how long it's going to take to play out. And you know we've. It's not just about shares. We've done done this in property. Uh, We'll do it in other things like venture capital and solar, so energy, and all sorts of other business opportunities where we disintermediate the institutions. Uh, Because fundamentally, my fundamental belief is that no one is better equipped to manage your money than you are. And yes, there are friction points to ensuring that that statement is true, i.e. there's education and access uh, and a whole lot of things. But those things we can solve. Uh, If we just keep saying that institutions are smarter better, that's rubbish, man. You know, that's why. You know, we've democratized access to information and smartphones. And I've got as much access to Elon Musk as anyone else in the world. No one's there's no inside line to Elon Musk that we don't all have by just following him on Twitter. So yeah, you're you're not I think your your future statement is here today. I think that it is playing out um, and that it won't be long before very large brands start swapping out loyalty systems and saying, I'm just going to give you shares. And it has happened in America. Uh, T-Mobile did it a few years ago, uh, fairly successfully, not as successful as I would have liked, but I think the execution wasn't great. But it's going to happen here in South Africa for sure.
0: A couple of questions that are coming here. Any plans to venture venture into the micro-insurance space or is that a bit out of your uh, range at the moment?
1: Look, we're definitely going to play in the insurance space and our focus is on... The road or the, the rails that we've set down as a group, we will only deliver product that either help you build wealth or protect wealth. So I think that's important. We're not going to add uh, anything else. If we do anything else, we'll partner other businesses to do it. So for us, the protection of wealth in terms of insurance products, 100 percent, you know, we're definitely going to do those. And when I don't know, we just we, for now, we've got a lot to do still on the creation of wealth. And when we run out of things to do there, then we'll focus on the other side of the coin.
0: And then uh two more that have come through here this uh, both anonymous unfortunately one just to comment you're just going to love this unfortunately one of the aspects that easy equities has succeeded is in the language and the voice around investing and finance they obviously love you i think this must have been one of your team that's posted this it's relatable engaging and educational the resources portal newsletter and the easy equities podcast are wonderful examples kudos i could probably go on there On the uh, slightly more negative side, though, you are in charge of a huge amount of information in what should be a very regulated market. Obviously, everyone has heard, I think most people on this call will have heard about the issues Robin Hood faced earlier in the year, a lot of people are saying Robin Hood are basically, uh, they're not Robin Hood at all, they're not doing good, they're actually more like the Sheriff of Nottingham. Are you getting pressure um, locally to answer questions like, I don't know, how you're using leverage, what you're doing with margin calls, whether you're sharing information uh, for a fee that you're collecting in those uh, you know, vast number of trades that you're picking up?
1: Yeah, look, we don't do any of those things um, for now. We don't do margin lending. We don't, do, we don't sell order flow. We don't do any of that stuff. So I, and I think the key thing is that at the center of our success lies a simple word, trust. It's our, my team trusts us to execute and when I say team, I mean all our stakeholders, our shareholders, our staff, uh, they trust us to execute and importantly, that trust extends to our customers. To the extent that we lose trust, we lose momentum and so for us, it's got got to be at the center of every decision we make, we've got to evaluate what the impact will be on trust and I think that will navigate us the right way. Um, and I think that that is not, you know, I don't, I love Robin Hood. I love what they've done. They've set the benchmark for, you know, exponential growth in the sector. But I think if on trust, I think they're eroding trust through some of their actions and that will impact on that uh, business growth going forward, because it will, it doesn't in the same way that they disrupted the stock game, it'll be just as easy for someone to disrupt them who at the center of their business places, more trust. And so, yeah, for for us, that will navigate us. Just keep trust at the center of your decision-making process.
0: There's two last questions that have just come through. I think they're kind of almost yes or no. The first one is, any chance we may see options trading on the platform anytime soon? No. (laughs) And Charles uh, asks, I like this one. Can investors vote for, not that I didn't like the last one, someone had to ask it. Can investors vote for AGMs through the uh, easy equities or nominate a proxy and, and I just extend that or are you working towards that back to this, giving consumers and equity consumers, particularly the power?
1: Yeah, so yes they can and yes they can. And you know, it's important. that's the important part for us is that we're not, this is not shares for rent. Um, these are your shares, you get to vote them, you get the, uh, the dividends. You know, the only thing we, and we fractionize the dividends as well. So, you know, you get your portion of the dividend. What we haven't done is fractionalize the vote. And the reason we haven't is that we were too small when we were thinking about it to worry about what that fractional output might be in terms of the value of that vote. As we get bigger, we must fractionalize the vote, too. Uh, you know, it's not, technology to do it is easy. It's, not, it's a simple thing to do. But then the question is, why do it if it's not going to have an impact? Mm-hmm. But as we get bigger, we definitely will fractionalize the the votes as well. And then, you know, it could be interesting. You get people buying your votes at some point. So it could become an economic trade where people are buying votes from shareholders, even fractional shareholders.
0: Have you ever thought about becoming a proxy um, for the shareholders in the votes and actually creating a mechanism where you can explicitly ask them what you would be voting for on their actual behalf so that you're independent and just purely listening to the crowd, whoever fills out your survey to actually put that message back into the AGM?
1: Yeah, we could. We have thought about it and perhaps we should do it. Um, As you know, Colin, when you're building a... A business startup still and exponential they're just choices you make around what's going to have the biggest impact and for us this hasn't been a, a big deal but you know we've got to a million customers and I think we've got to think about some of those services now too
0: you've been listening to another production from Solid Gold podcasts.